I'm not sitting here saying to your audience or anybody out there that everybody should have plastic surgery. Not at all. It's the furthest thing from my mind. If you are feel so confident and you are great in your skin and there's nothing about you that bothers you, I'm the first one to tell patients who show up at the door, I don't know, my mom thinks I should do this. Well, do you think you should do this? Because if you don't, I don't think you should do this because it's about you. At the end of the day, I provide a service that makes people feel better about themselves. So if there's no problem that you have with you, we're not even having this conversation. It's not about that. So I want your audience to understand that it's about really helping those patients who are interested. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. James Morata, a dual board certified facial plastic surgeon with education and training from some of the finest institutions in the world. He leads the team at Murata Plastic Surgery Specialists. Dr. Murata specializes in facial plastic surgery, keeping up on the latest trends and techniques in popular procedures like facelifts and rhinoplasty. In addition to being a respected and highly sought-after doctor, Dr. Murata is also an author. He recently launched his latest work, You're Not a Vanity Purchase. Dr. Murata also gives back by volunteering his time and surgical expertise to face-to-face, helping victims of domestic violence with facial injuries and to faces of honor, helping veterans who have suffered face or neck injuries while deployed overseas. Learn what makes Dr. Murata different and how he has transformed lives. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. James Murata with us today. He leads the team at Murata Plastic Surgery Specialist. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Murata. Thank you for having me, Larry. I appreciate the uh, invitation, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a nice conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, again, I appreciate you taking out the time. So just so our, our listeners understand you know, a little bit about your background, can you tell us about your path that led you to become a plastic surgery specialist and then starting Murata Plastic Surgery Specialist of Long Island? Absolutely. So I was uh, an undergraduate. I was an economics and philosophy major at Columbia, and I really kind of searched for my career path, and certainly business had crossed my mind at that point. I ended up very roundabout, very long story, and ended up deciding to go to medical school and came back, went back to Columbia, did my pre-med requirements, and then did the four years of medical school at Stony Brook in Long Island, where I eventually settled in this area. And then I um, I matched in otolaryngology and head neck surgery at Yale. And there, um, you know, a large part of uh, head neck surgery training is it's integrated with uh, plastic surgery and facial plastic surgery. We did a lot of reconstructive surgery in, in cancers and head neck cancers. As a resident, I was exposed to then cosmetic plastic surgery, which was facelifts and blepharoplasties. And I thought that was fascinating. So I went on to do additional fellowship training in facial plastics and became a board certified, uh, double board certified facial plastic surgeon. And then came back and 
um, after fellowship established my own practice, which took me on a whole nother career, which was uh, becoming a, a businessman. <laughs> so that was the last iteration of my life. And that's where I am right now. Businessman, entrepreneur, facial plastic surgeon. There you go. So when you went back and you, you went into the whole pre-med route, did you have any indication at that point that this was where you were going to end up or did it just kind of happen that, you know, to work out that way? No idea. I mean, my thinking was I did a um, volunteer work at a hospital in Germany when I was traveling abroad for a year and I volunteered at a psychiatric hospital. I thought mental illness and uh, was just so devastating, but also fascinating. I thought the human mind was something that I really wanted to spend my life studying. So I was intent with becoming a psychiatrist when I decided to go to medical school. But, you know, when you're there and you're exposed to different fields and you ultimately got down to it, I, I thought head neck anatomy was fascinating. There's a lot of neurology and integrated science with facial plastics, with the more cerebral field of as I said, neurology and physiology. And I thought that was fascinating. So that's how I kind of ended up in facial plastics from wanting to become, become a psychiatrist. Well, so I, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> to the lay user, uh, listener, but that's kind of what happened. But a lot well, of my job is psychiatry too. So <laughs> yeah, well, I'm kind of disappointed, you know, being that I'm so involved in mental health, I think we lost a great pr practitioner <laughs> along the way that could have possibly revolutionized that area. But how much of that decision-making process of making that switch is yours versus the educational system kind of telling you that this is where your skills lie and this is the direction you should go in? Is Is that all up to you? as you go through that process? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think now, you know, back then there was a big drive and shortage for primary care physicians and particularly at Stony Brook University because it's a state-run hospital. They really were pushing the primary care line, you know, to most of the medical students. But we had obviously free will and free choice to go into any field we wanted to. So we we had the range of specialties. So I don't feel uh, I was influenced unduly in any any particular direction. We really, yeah, we decided our own fate. That's awesome. Yeah, so my, well, part of it for me was when you're younger, your idealism is really kind of driving your decisions. But as you got matured and got a little bit older, and then I was then, then engaged to my now wife, started thinking about a family and started thinking about okay, it's great. I, I, you know, I, I want to help people and save the world, but I also need to make a living and provide for a family and need to have a, a reasonable lifestyle and, and time. And those things kind of factored in. So that kind of led me toward, you know. Right. So you and I had opposite paths to some degree. You started out as a philosophy major and ended up in medicine. And I started out as a pre-med major and ended up in finance. <laughs> wow. So, hey, you know, listen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we could, we both have, you know, interesting how that works out. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I think that comes to mind always is when you talk about plastic surgery, how much of your practice is based upon medical need versus elective? Because I have no idea. Yeah. When I started my practice, I really was open to doing anything. You know, I mean, of course, you I was an unknown person. I would go to the emergency rooms and sew up lacerations. I would remove sebaceous cysts. I would do anything, you know, to, to bring in income because I started the practice from I had one secretary that I hired. I was fortunate enough to step into a, a plastic surgery practice who was stepping down and then just really rent his space and then took over the rental space there. So I started from nothing and I grew the practice slowly. You know, now we're up to 24 employees, but that 
took a time where I was willing to do anything. And so I did a lot of, again, the smaller stuff, but then reconstruct a lot of reconstructive work. When I first started, skin cancer repairs was um, important to my practice to bring in revenue while I was growing the fee-for-service portion of the practice. And then um, probably about, I would say, five or six years into the practice, I had a critical decision to make. And I looked at my revenue and I looked at the, the, the amount of energy and time that my employees were taking to hunt down our accounts payable from the insurance companies. And it was disproportionate to the amount of revenue that the uh, insurance-based income was bringing in. I'd done, a, I remember, a very complex melanoma a woman was missing, you know, a portion of her eyelid, half of her cheek, and I had done a rotational f- cervical f- rotation flap, which is basically taking the neck skin and rotating it up to reconstruct her eyelid and face. And I spent six hours in surgery. I had probably three or four office, you know, uh, surgical visits to the hospital where I had to take out of my office time. And although I love making a difference in this woman's life, and uh, but I got the check from the insurance company. I think it was actually Medicare. It was, it was like $1,100. And I, I couldn't foresee, you know, in, in the foreseeable future, like taking the time out of my office time and and paying my staff and my overhead and thing and continue to do that. So I made the critical decision to just go completely fee for service. And so now I'm out of network and that was five years into my practice. I'm now 16 years into practice. And it was turned out to be the best decision I ever made in my life because within one year, I think my revenue doubled, you know, because I was spending less time hounding insurance company. I mean, having my staff hounding insurance companies, they were more focused on growing our elective cosmetic surgery practice. And that's where we've been kind of razor focused for the last uh, 11 or so years. That's such a shame that the insurance companies and the governmental agencies have forced you and other doctors to kind of go in that direction because it's so difficult to get paid, to get paid a reasonable and quality pay for your service. And it's a shame. So right now you're basically 100% elective to that regard. 100% elective. You know, if somebody wants, um, has something that's medically necessary, their insurance company might have out-of-network benefits, and then we'll bill their insurance company for the medically necessary portions of that procedure so that may be covered. But, you know, usually it's also, you know, for example, the most common thing is rhinoplasty. So somebody has a functional breathing issue where they need, um, you know, they would normally get some insurance coverage for that. So that portion of it we built to the insurance company, but the cosmetic portion of reshaping or making the nose look better, that's fee for service. Right. Now, so, I know you said you made that change, uh, you know, what'd you say, about 16 years ago or yeah. so you made the change. But I'm sure anecdotally, you've heard from other people in your profession how things are going in that regard. The insurance company and the lack thereof and their ability, has that gotten worse, stayed the same or gotten better over those number of years? I think it's pretty much only gotten worse. There's more red tape, more processing, more reticence on the, you know, the insurance companies, hey, they've got a great racket. And fortunately, the doctors were caught sleeping and they collect your fees every month you pay into them, but then they don't want to reimburse physicians on the payment, you know, and I think, unfortunately, patients, you know, for the most part, sometimes patients are also not on the physician side. They see these maybe astronomical bills where the physicians build the insurance company. Uh, and the reason that they, they usually build a great percentage over what they collect is because they don't 
nearly collect any, you know, a, a reasonable fee. So that's the reason why the billables are so much higher. But patients see that it's given doctors, unfortunately, a bad reputation with patients as being, I've heard people say, oh, um, I mean, my doctor just makes me come back so he can collect the copay. Oh, yeah, sure. The $50 that you're putting in your copay really doesn't help that doctor run that office. Huh? Right. I, I hate to tell you, but physicians are being squeezed. And that's what's driven a lot of physicians out of the profession. Mm-hmm. Some just just decided to quit, right. Some redirected into more pressure to go into more fee-for-service kinds of practice. Like, for example, in my field in, in elective cosmetic surgery, I'm a double board certified in the field, but there's a lots of practitioners who have no background whatsoever who, because of financial pressure, because of insurance companies, are now doing Botox injections. Like, you might find them at your local dentist or <laughs> doing filler injections and things like that. And I've that's, seen Botox house parties. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how that works, but I haven't attended yet. No, no, <laughs> I haven't either. I, uh, I don't, uh, I prefer a scotch at my parties. There you go. There you go. <laughs> we can talk about bourbon. that a whole nother time. <laughs> we have a whole nother show about that. Yeah. So what are some of the most common procedures done within the practice? Facelifts, blepharoplasty, uh, rhinoplasty. Those are really the mainstay for me. As if I'm a facial plastic surgeon, so my specialty is in the face. I do all plastic surgery from the clavicles up. So. It really falls into two categories, kind of facial proportion. So that would be the younger patient who maybe has their nose is disproportionate to their face or too large for the face or, or too small, or maybe cheeks or chin or an issue. So volumizing those areas or facial rejuvenation surgery. So you have patients who are aging and they don't like the way they look. And so eyelids, uh, eyelid surgery or uh, forehead lifts or face lifts and things like that. So that's really what's been, you know, well, all of my time doing. Yeah, which, you know, I would imagine these are areas that we're all very aware of because we see it. It's not like it's under your shirt or under your pants. It's really that first impression. So how much of an impact does looking good have on a patient's mindset, do you think? I mean, you have the psychiatrist background also because that's where you were <laughs> looking to go into. So I'm sure you could speak very handsomely to the mindset piece. Yeah, well, I actually just recently, my book uh, came out called You're Not a Vanity Purchase, Why You Shouldn't Feel Bad About Looking Good. It really addresses that portion of the importance of appearance to people's psychological well-being, to people's success. I talk about something called the attractiveness advantage in the book, where universally things like, for example, CEOs of a certain average height you know, a greater income percentage than CEOs of a of lesser height or people who are elected presidents or attractiveness conveys a, you know, something like a 7% wage increase over people who are deemed on, you know, it's just pervasive in all facets of life, how important appearance is to us. Cause we are visual beings, right? We communicate with our eyes first. So much of perception is the perception of who somebody is, is communicated visually. And so that goes beyond, that's why the the byline of the book is, you know, I mean, why the main title of the book is you're not a vanity purchase because vanity has nothing really to do with vanity. The first thing I hear from people when they find out what I do is, oh, wow, about, well, first thing is usually something derogatory about people who do get plastic right. surgery and something about the Hollywood people who look plastic or uh, and all this negativity surrounding it which is, you know, a vast minority, really a very small minority of the patients that actually get plastic surgery. I mean, plastic surgery, when it's done well, is natural, undetectable, and really can make a huge impact and change people's lives. 
And I have story after story of patients' lives who were completely transformed because they had some kind of physical roadblock, you know, whether it's their eye bags that they go into a board meeting and somebody says, you know, did you sleep last night? Are you feeling okay? And are you angry at me? Because their brows are downturned and people interpret these physical cues as being some kind of psychological and social impediment. And that's picked up on by other people. And I hear people tell me that all the time, that once those things are gone, that people treat them differently. They feel differently about themselves. Their lives transform because not only do they feel differently about how they look, but that translates into self-confidence, which translates into how people perceive them. And there's an un, a, a feedback. Very circular. Yeah, a very feedback circular loop. feedback yes. loop. Yes. You know, think about it. You get a great haircut or you got a new sharp suit on and you walk into the room and people say, wow, you see that kind of double take. People perceive you as looking good and it inspires confidence in you and your then your behavior changes. And so that's why, to your point, there is such a, an undeniable connection between looking good and feeling good. You can't divorce the two. As much as you might try and say, we shouldn't be superficial and we shouldn't judge people based on their appearance and we shouldn't, we do all the time. That is part of being human. And you're never going to get rid of that because it's in our evolution. And I go that into that in detail in the book because our brains, there's something like 30,000 neurons in the optic system alone, as opposed to 7,000 neurons in the auditory and system. So that's how much more important vision is to us and our you know, social relations are based on visual perception of people a lot of time. So the yeah. saying, look good, feel good is right on, really, right? Yeah, right on. So listen, you said that you have many stories of people that um, have had a transformation and it, it's transformed their life. Can you share one in particular with us where you had an impact in that way and, and the person came out on the other side sure, with this I mean, transformation? Sure. I'll, I, you know, if you give me a second, I would actually, you know, we've got plenty of stories actually in the book. After the sudden loss of my husband, my physical appearance changed. I work in the beauty industry as a hairstylist and makeup artist, and I, t I took about eight months off. This wasn't because of how I looked, but because I didn't want to be social or talk about him with clients. After seeing pictures of myself with my granddaughters, I realized I was wearing the pain on my face and in my eyes. This change in appearance, along with significant weight loss, made me look like a melted candle. I didn't want to constantly be reminded of my pain every time I looked in the mirror. I just wanted it to go away. Another patient, two years prior to my surgery, were terrible. I lost my dear mother and my husband, and I was a caregiver to both. I couldn't care for my husband during the last months of his life because I had been diagnosed with cancer and was covering, covering from a mastectomy. Talk about poor timing. After a period of grief, physical recovery, and reconstruction, I found myself with poor body image and low self-esteem. I literally needed a lift. My sister had just undergone facial surgery and was very pleased with the results. I chose to have some as well. I definitely felt guilt. Why should I be so vain? I should be just, just be happy to be a cancer survivor. Story after story about people who, you know, were able to kind of overcome their physical, their mental roadblock because of transforming their physical lives. Right. It's, it's amazing that to some degree, we're our own worst enemies, right? You look in the mirror, you have this story or whatever repeating in your head. And if you're in on the wrong side of that, it could be a very detrimental and debilitating thing that you listen and replay on a daily basis, where if you go through one of these changes that you've mentioned with these folks uh, previously, it kind of changes that message, changes their well-being, and it transforms their lives in, in ways that they probably never even thought of before. Absolutely. I mean, this is not about 
This is about the patient who has that ongoing conversation in their head, okay? It's, I'm not sitting here saying to your audience or anybody out there that, hey, you know, everybody should have plastic surgery. Right. Not at all. It's the furthest thing from my mind. If you are feel so confident and you are great in your skin and there's nothing about you that bothers you, I'm the first one to tell patients who show up at the door, say, oh, I don't know. My mom thinks I should do this. Well, do you think you should do this? Because if you don't, I don't think you should do this because it's about you. You know, right. at the end of the day, I provide a service that makes people feel better about themselves. So if there's no problem with you, that you have with you, we're not even having this conversation. It's not about right. that. So I want your audience to understand it, it's about really helping those patients who are interested. Right. And who have that ongoing, you know, conversation in their head, as you mentioned, that just they can't get past it. You know, every time I have people come in all the time, you know what, Doc, every time I get it, especially now with Zoom and with <laughs> Instagram and, you know, I can't even take a profile picture. If I have to look at my nose from the side, I just turn my head to the front and I just, you know, I can't stand it, you know, right. and I don't want to, you know, be in any of my wedding pictures, stuff like that. That's, yeah. that's you make when, me think of Howard Stern because he talks a lot about, you know, he only wants to be photographed from one side in one way because he's very <laughs> self-conscious about himself. I love and, Howard. Uh, I listen to Howard. Yeah, too. so do I. But yeah. I think he had some plastic surgery done a few years back and kind of did it under the radar without really making a big deal and telling yeah. people about it. Oh, he admits he freely admitted it. Yeah. He had a rhinoplasty. He had a very minor rhinoplasty. You know, right. he, he jokes around like, you know, you if you see my nose, you would barely say that I've ever had a rhinoplasty. <laughs> but even with that, he still only wants to be photographed from one side with specific light. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess that's right. You know, what percentage of people come to you and they're not a good fit where they're coming in saying so-and-so is telling me or this one's telling me and you're like, listen, if you're good with you, then what are we doing here kind of thing? Or does it even get to that point usually? Yeah, I would say it's a very small percentage. If you took all comers of my consultations most people will come in, they have a real issue, you know, and they're pretty much ready to go forward and they're on the schedule. Right. Then you have a smaller percentage of patients who, you know, they're not quite sure. They just wanted to get information. And then an even smaller percentage of patients who come in and have some perceived physical flaw that's not actually there, you know, and then you're getting more into the realm of things like body dysmorphic disorder and very, again, I would probably say on the order of two to three percent, right? You know, patients are like that. Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting. So, one of the things that I found it very interesting about your practice is, and you're very upfront and client facing or patient facing about it, we should say, is about the core values of your practice. You call it PACT. Tell our listeners, what is PACT all about and why is this so important to you and your, why should it be important to your patients? It was really developed on for our employees to give them a guidance as to how they should approach any situation or decision with regard to their professional life here in the practice. So our PACT, uh, you know, it's an acronym for patient-centric attitude. Attitude is everything, commitment to care and teamwork. So when faced with a decision, hey, should I do this or that? You know, patient-centric attitude, the patient always comes first. That's number one. The patient is the lifeblood of the practice. Everything we do is focused around their experience and how we can make their lives better. And so if they keep that in the forefront of their mind, they're living the pack. Attitude is everything. A positive attitude is infectious and a negative attitude is obviously a cancer. You know, so we want people to 
be happy about working here, about, you know, and conveying that attitude to others. Commitment to care is a level of excellence. You know, if you're not committed to excellence, then you don't really belong as part of our team. And team is the last thing. Team players are A players. Everybody can pitch in. There's no job too big, too small. Everyone takes out the garbage. Everyone sleeps, sweeps the floors. Everybody picks up that piece of garbage that's sitting there, floor that detracting from our overall stage, you know, our front, what we call our front stage, which is the appearance to the patient, which can, you know, we try to keep impeccable at all times. And the pact is, um, you know, we, we there is our core values. And when we find people who don't align with our core values, who can't live those four principles, they don't belong in our team. And they usually self-select out, you know, we right. usually uh, have those people eventually see uh, see themselves at the door. Yeah, I love that. I love having the core values. I love the patient coming first and always doing the right thing by the patient. In my industry, we call it being a fiduciary and always putting our clients first. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our industry that don't have to live and subscribe to that same role. Something we do subscribe to because like your patients, I think our clients should always come first. And it's great when you have those core values set aside. And it's amazing how people end up self-selecting out, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you don't end up having to say anything or doing anything about it. Typically, those that will live by your core values will stick around and abide and, and follow them to the letter of the law. And then those that don't have a tendency not to stick around very long. It's amazing how that works. Yeah, it is. It is amazing how it works. And it's really, like I said, the guiding light for our decisions as well. And and you know what? They're not easy to live by. There are situations that we all find ourselves, whether you're a member of the leadership team, whether you're, you know, whatever position you're in in the practice. And even for me, uh, there are times when my employees need to remind me to, hey, doc, you know, C or T or A or, you know, <laughs> because yeah, they sound great on paper, but all of us have our better angels, you know, and right. all of us have our demons. So we all need to be reminded of what are we here for? What are our values? How do we stand and, and how do we present ourselves to the world? And not only do the employees, you know, in terms of your employment, and that's why we decided also to, that's why you even know about it, because we said, gee, this is something that we present here on the back end, and why are we holding this out? Why don't we put it out there sure. to the world so that our patients know that this is how we live as well? And so that was a, a brilliant idea by our team to, to also share that with the world, to know that these are the values that we, you know, we strive to live by. Yeah, I think it's great. And, uh, you know, again, I, it was very meaningful to me. And I, you know, to see it from a business standpoint, I, I'm always loving when companies put it out there because then you know that they're willing and wanting to live up to those standards because you don't put it out there if you're not going to do it because you're going to be just like those people self select out. You're going to have a patient come in and say, Hey, wait a minute. I saw this on their website. They didn't do this, this, or this. I'm not going back or I'm yeah. not referring them. And it has the opposite effect. If they see it and you're living by it, then it has that opposite effect. Well, you know what? I'm dealing with a high class, high respectable organization, and I'm going to be willing to go back, utilize them and refer. Yeah. Which is the key. That's a great point. You know, that's kind of where my mind was headed for it drifted a little bit. But mm -hmm. I was saying not only the employees select that, but the, the patients select. Agreed. Uh, you know, patient selection is my employees will say, and I will say all the time, we have the greatest patients in the world. We have people who are just nice people, respectful, respectable, 
And there are all different kinds of clients and you can pick and choose who you decide to deal with. I'm sure in your business, you have the same thing. You know, have your clients who are just, you know what, they're not worth the headache. They're not worth the right. engagement. They have different values than you. You, mm-hmm. you don't meet in the middle. So putting your core values out there, not only selects, self-selects your people you work with, but your clients, which 100%. I think is, is, is key too. And that, I think the reason why we get great patients is, is that they know that that's kind of our values. And people who want to be in a mill who's cranking out plastic surgery, after, case after case, who don't care about the end result or the f- way people look or the feeling or the just willing to pay the money to the, the lowest bidder or negotiate on the, your expertise. Those are not the kind of patients or clients you want. Right. And so putting your core values out there also helps in that area too. We are first meeting with a potential client is, and we put it out there, we call it an, is there a fit meeting? We want to make sure that there's a fit before we even move forward for many of those reasons that you stated. So I think it's excellent. Now you talked about the new book and congratulations on that. The, uh, the book's title is you're not a vanity purchase. And you said a little bit about the message of the book and what it's about and including these stories. Who should be reading this book and what should they expect to get out of it? Is it for everybody or is it for specific people that are considering doing plastic surgery, for example? Who's the audience here? I wrote it. The audience was, um, you know, an inspiration for the book was the patients I deal with on a daily basis. I, you know, I've been doing this for, as I said, 16 years and and I've heard time and time again, people wrestle with the guilt and decision-making over plastic surgery, whether they're feeling like it, they're, you know, they're making a vanity purchase, they're doing something that's taboo or wrong, or they feel nervous about the results or feel nervous about being criticized for a decision to pursue plastic. For those people you know, who are really kind of wrestling with their decision to have a procedure or not have a procedure and helping them to negotiate the reasons why it's more than just such a vanity purchase. And it's some of the stuff that I alluded to before, the evolutionary, the biological right. reasons why it's so important for you to want to look and go- look good and feel good, why it's more than just your uh, vanity, so to speak. And, and going to the entire scientific basis behind that, I talk about the process of aging, how intervention in the aesthetic world is really no different than any other area of medicine, where you have a process, a disease process, in this particular instance, it might be aging, and we're using Hmm. the best that medical science has available to intervene and to change the course of that. So it gives people a different perspective when they're deciding to pursue this. And then I go into, of course, how you go about choosing a physician, what are some of the criteria you want to look for in making a smart decision, why it's so important to avoid traps like medical tourism or poorly trained practitioners. So anybody considering plastic surgery, it's really a great read. And I try to do it in a way that's a little bit more fun. You know, it starts with a patient story, typical patient experience, and then goes into more of some of the details about helping you cope with your... Because as I said, it really was kind of a, a pat on the back, a hug to the patients who were wrestling with this stuff. Because I've heard right. it from so many patients who felt the need to justify their decision to their loved ones, to their friends, to and felt alone a lot of times and alone in their decision. So we also created a Facebook page where patients can go and share their issues and stories. If they're running into uh, guilt issues, if they're running into resistance from friends and family, right? if they're, you know, need some place for support, you know, they can go to our Facebook page uh, about you're not a vanity purchase and, and engage with us and, and we'll help navigate those things. 
That's great. I mean, I think it's a good opportunity to give stories about how people have successfully navigated that process. And for people who are considering it, kind of give them food for thought on, uh, you know, how to how to go through that and, and the best takeaways on how to move forward and, and kind of negotiate that, which is fantastic. Now, you mentioned earlier about how indirectly you talked about Zoom, which I was going to ask you about how COVID and the pandemic has impacted your practice and in what ways. So that indirectly is one of them. Is that the only thing that you've seen is people are a little bit more self-conscious now because they're on screen more often? And I don't understand, maybe it's my naivety, you know, naivete, but whether I'm on Zoom or meeting people in person, I think it's kind of the same. But how have you guys been impacted by it? Yeah, I mean, just to get directly to that point, it's it's called the Zoom boom, you know, in, in plastic surgery, there's just an inordinate number of people pursuing, in particular, surgery, because they had the downtime, they had the cover of working from home, of being able to take, even now, I mean, just this week, I did four facelifts, and three of them mentioned to me, well, I, I'm not so worried about, you know, the two weeks of downtime, because I can do some uh, video, you know, I can do uh, Zoom calls, but with the video off, you know. Right. So that has been an eye opener for us and 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 my field because you realize that the barrier to, to entry is not so much the fear and the guilt and the things I've written about in the book. It's not so much the financial. It's it's really is the downtime that people have. Interesting, you know. So if we can figure out that piece of the puzzle going forward, once COVID's over, that would continue to lead to increased people opting for it. And then there's a whole uh, list, you know, a bunch of kind of, you know, I guess COVID presented the biggest business challenge for the entire country and businesses, unfortunately, you know, some of course were devastated by it, but others businesses were, you know, there was kind of these, um, were forced to adapt. And if you were lucky enough to get, keep your team intact financially through the crisis, you know, there's some kind of happy, I would say, influences or of COVID or happy byproducts because you had to be creative. Like for example, mm-hmm. when we were down, uh, you know, we all elective surgery was a shut down as a, you know, March, mid-March last year. And we didn't go back until June. So the only way we generated revenue is actually seeing people physically. I mean, we can't generate revenue without providing injectable treatments or laser right. treatments or doing surgeries. The only thing we could do in that downtime was do uh, consults. So we had to up our technological game and all of a sudden, within a week, we were providing virtual consults through various platforms which we never used before. And now it's just a viable option for somebody who's from out of state and I treat people from, you know, sometimes out of the country, they can do a virtual consult with us and get everything from all the information on the practice, meet me, do the um, virtual imaging where they get a virtual before and after picture and do that all virtually. So these are all things that are going to help you long term. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to, well, obviously we're not going to stop doing them right. because it's a, a, a convenience for the patient uh, anywhere they are in the world. So those are, I mean, things like we don't use our waiting room. Our waiting room is this big vacuum right now because people, you can't come in because people are waiting in the parking lot. Right. And we'll text them when they're, you know, they can come in and when we're ready for them. And so a virtual waiting room kind of in the parking lot is the new thing. So you can increase your waiting room space by having this virtual texting service. So it's kind of a, you know, these strategic byproducts that happen as a result of crisis. And that's why... Dan Sullivan, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, him, strategic yeah, well, coach. There you go. There, he that, talks about that, that. You know, that's one of the things he talks about all the time is uh, st- byproducts of events and things that happen. 
Larry, very perceptive because that's exactly where that comes from. Oh, so you're a Dan Sullivan subscriber. I did coach for about four or five years. Okay. Yeah, yeah I don't do he, it anymore, but I did it for four or five years. And that's, See, I think you're a businessman first, plastic <laughs> surgeon second, maybe, <laughs> with a little psychiatrist involved in there. there but you go. Uh, Yeah, so listen, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, and we end every show asking all of our guests the same question, and that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mind? mindset for success. I got up uh, you know, early in the morning and I did my uh, Miracle Morning, which is a, a great book as if you, if you want to read it. It's, you know, it's basically seven habits that you do every day that get you in the right frame of mind. So awesome. I read, read 10 minutes of a good book. I, I journal, I meditate, do some exercise. And so that's kind of how I started my day. And definitely the exercise portion was great today. I pushed myself a little harder. So what's your form of exercise? What's your choice? I do, um, you know, a little bit of everything. So I'm on Mondays, I'll do some weight training on Tuesdays. I'll do rowing on Wednesday. I'll do a treadmill running Thursday, a little more weights Friday. I'll do high intensity interval training, which involves stretching and all that. And then Saturday and Sunday is reserved for golf. There you go. <laughs> Which right. is a lot of exercise. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. If people want to find you, and we're going to have this in the show notes, what's the best way for them to find you in your practice? Website, www.marottamd.com. Great. Listen, Dr. Marotta, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and make it a great day. Thank you, Larry. You too. I want to thank Dr. James Murata for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Dr. Murata has become a go-to in his field and transforming lives has become a staple of what he does. The core values the practice delivers is amazing. Coupled with Dr. Murata using his skills to help those in need is unbelievably admirable as well. Dr. Murata can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him or his book can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.